There are certain moments and words that shaped a new era in pro wrestling. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Brett screwed Brett. Die, Rocky, die. Suck it! Introducing the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. Tune in as we relive one of the most exciting, intense, and over-the-top times in WWE with new interviews with the voices that made the promos, calls, and catchphrases into history. Listen now. It's The Mismatch, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states or 18 plus in D.C. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Today's episode of The Mismatch is brought to you by Nissan. It's time to start getting excited about the journey and not the destination with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Built to navigate you to some of Earth's most inspiring spots with seven drive modes and all the power you need. Get the thrill of the drive in every moment of your journey with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, thank you for listening to The Void. My name is Kevin O'Connor, and joining me today after a fun night of NBA playoffs games is Rohan Narkenny, an NBA writer at Sports Illustrated. Rohan, what's going on, man? How you doing today? I feel great. I mean, an exciting night of hoops, uh, a late twist also. So I- I'm just loving these playoffs so far and, and really excited to talk about it. Yeah, it's been a really good playoff so far. And you're right. We got a twist tonight. I DM'd you on Twitter earlier today because you wrote a great story about DeAndre Ayton. And I'm thinking, okay, we'll get Rohan <laughs> on for the first time. We've never, I don't think we've ever actually spoken. No, this, no. Ever. <laughs> but like, I'm like, let's do a pod together. I, I love your stuff. And then the Pelicans, they come out and win a huge game too over the Suns, 125 to 114. Devin Booker hurt his right hamstring in the game, missed all of the fourth quarter, a lot of the third quarter. That is going to be a storyline that we'll talk about that could have big implications moving forward in the series for the Suns. But ultimately, right now, 1-1, Brandon Ingram coming out with 37 points on 21 shots, nine assists, the four turnovers. He was a dominant force tonight for the New Orleans Pelicans. Ron, without Booker, did the Pelicans have a shot to actually win this series here? I mean, the Pelicans, I think, post-All-Star break, top 10 net rating in the NBA. I mean, they were really good after the CJ trade. Uh, They've been really good. I mean, you were tweeting about this. I think they've also found something with the way they're using Larry Nance at the five. I think that's been really good. I mean, tonight, listen, as good as the Suns are, no team is winning a playoff game if your opponent shoots 57% from three. I think part of that, it was... I think Phoenix just was waiting for them to blink. I I don't think their defensive disposition was there all the way. Um, they had like a shocking blown coverage there late in the game uh, where it looked like Chris Paul was going to pick up a different person. New Orleans gets a layup completely wide open. 
Um, This is a different Pelicans team. Obviously, the one that started the season, that one that we saw even in February. I I don't know that they'll win, but I think they could win another game, certainly another game or two even. Yeah, at least could push them to six. Mm -hmm. And, And that has great implications for Phoenix in terms of rest time for potential second-round series against, you know, Dallas or Utah could go deep as well. You know, Luka maybe comes back game three. We got news about that earlier today. We'll see if that actually happens. But that series could go deep. It would have been nice for Phoenix to get a little bit of extra rest. And like you said, at least one more for New Orleans. Maybe this even ends up going to a game seven, which is unfathomable considering the expectations heading into the series. But look, down the stretch of this game, we saw why New Orleans is a threat because Ingram is a bucket that pull up three he had with Jay Crowder's arm like literally in his nice. face. I, that, but you could not <laughs> defend that any better. No. Uh, th- they were hitting some crazy shots on the stretch. There was one three. I think it was McCollum's last three. Uh, Mikhail Bridges, you know, I think it was a handoff play. Mikhail Bridges sticks his hand out for like a half second. It's probably just a reflex. Just gives McCollum the space he needs, gets the ball, launches, drains it. Um, between McCollum and Ingram, I think they have two scores that are built perfectly for the playoffs. I mean, they can score from anywhere on the court. And their shot making, they just they didn't get tight at all. There was no fear. And and it sounds cliche, but normally teams, especially a group that hasn't played together, to put together a performance that mature was genuinely really impressive. That's a great point. That's a great point. The fact that we've only seen the, this this whole collection of players, McCollum, Nance, and all these guys together since February. Even a guy like Trey Murphy, he had a couple of blown assignments against Bridges off ball. But as a rookie, he didn't play a lot early in the year, got more consistent run. All of these guys coming together has happened late. And yet the chemistry with this Pelicans team is is really good. I mean, I, I think they play well together, and McCollum being a big part of that. Nine assists tonight to only three turnovers. He had big buckets down the stretch. Great pick-and-roll play, snaking his way through the defense to get to the basket. McCollum, the knock on him in Portland for years is playmaking. Oh, he's a bucket, but he's not a passer. He has shown more of the passing ability in New Orleans that he never was really able to show for years in Portland. I thought tonight was indicative of that with his ability to playmake. Yeah, and I, I think that he... I think he's responding better the more responsibility they're giving him. Um, You can say this about both teams, but you mentioned that playmaking thing that's interesting because that was also not his role in Portland, right? I mean, he's not running the same number of high pick and rolls as Damian Lillard is. Uh, It's obvious kind of where he was in the hierarchy of that team. And I think him being kind of the leader, the veteran on this team, I, I think that he's had to take on that playmaking responsibility and he's responded well to it. And it's cool to see him thrive in a different situation. As weird as it was to see him those first few weeks in a Pelicans uniform, it just, it didn't feel right. Um, I don't think Portland was holding him back, but the fact that this team's asking him to do more and he's delivering, uh, it's been really fun to watch. It seems like everybody on this Pelicans roster has managed to fulfill who they are and the roles that they're given. Like even, even somebody like Jackson Hayes after a shaky game one, there's calls, well, maybe they should change the starting five. Even tonight, there was some conversation about that. And then he comes out in the third quarter. Hayes was nuts. The, oh, my God. He had the pass off the short roll to a corner three, then this crazy dunk, then a the crazy block. block. <laughs> yes, then two board dunks in transition, sprinting ahead of the whole defense. He was just constantly hustling, showing off the athleticism. It's like they have so many good players on their roster. They're just, I don't know. The Pelicans really, like, my my hot take with them is with Ingram specifically is that it his improvement from last season to this season oh, is great, it's even great, better. It's greater mm. than his improvement in his most improved year. Hit the first year with the Pelicans, and the reason why is because he got worse on defense. 
That year, he got worse when he went from L.A. to New Orleans. He got better on offense. He got more usage. But this year, there's been defensive progress in terms of intensity, uh, in terms of his consistency. And, to, and then on offense, the playmaking improvement, in addition to the fact he's continuing to shred as a scorer. I just think this is the best we've ever seen Ingram play. It might be the best we've ever seen McCollum play. They have all these good role players. They're just missing Zion Williamson. Like, can you imagine if they had Zion out there instead of Jackson Hayes or Jonas Valanciunas for a lot of these minutes? My goodness. They dropped the nugget, too. At the end of the game, he's been playing five-on-five and hasn't been coming against the team, but he's doing the separate five-on-five work. Just the the strangeness of the information, and is it the team that doesn't want him to play? Is it Zion? It's it's really, really confusing. I just want to add this about the Suns before I forget. I do think they kind of needed, not a wake-up call, but like late third quarter, they played an all-bench lineup. And I know Monty Williams has trust in that team, and that group has played well during the season. But And it's going to be difficult without Booker. It's not going to be easy. But I thought that was... It feels like that was a little bit of a game one, slow-playing, easier way into the series move. And I was surprised to see him go with that all-bench lineup you know, for the last three and a half minutes, I think of the fourth. And I, I do think maybe this is kind of the maybe the kick in the pants that they needed that urgency a little bit. So for them, like, you know, we can assume we don't know for sure, but we can assume Devin Booker could miss some number of games. I'm he, thinking they got to hold him out the rest of the series. You don't want a hardened situation. Yes, you would think so. And plus, he missed a couple of weeks the last time mm. that he had a hamstring injury earlier this year. So realistically, I mean, maybe a couple of games, but even more realistically, probably the rest of the series, however long that ends up lasting. Maybe he comes back if it's a desperate game six or seven where you need a win, and you never know. Like you just said, yeah. Zion stuff is this weird storyline where we don't know all the facts yet. Andrew Lopez at ESPN had a report, I believe last week, where he said that there is disagreement on when he'll, when he'll return, what his recovery situation will be. So we'll see there. If he returns, that's certainly a, a big X factor with what could happen for Phoenix. But, you know, you mentioned it, though. They play that all-bench lineup. Without Booker, that really hurts. You're playing a lot more Landry Shamit. You're playing a lot more campaign. What do you think Phoenix should be doing here in terms of distributing those touches that should that were going to Booker? Is this is this a series where maybe we do see a little bit more Aiton, like we did during the stretch Chris Paul was inactive? Uh, or is this a stretch where they is a, a series where they're better off running it through their guards more often, whether it's Payne, whether it's Chris Paul, rather than Aiton going against uh, Jonas Valanciunas inside? Yeah, that's an it's an interesting question because. You know, I, I, obviously, like I wrote about Aiton today, and I, I appreciate you having me on because it's interesting. I think as good as Aiton has been, he's he's still not necessarily a, a we're going to throw you the ball and get you a bucket guy. Like, I and I think that the context of how he succeeds is so important. He's able to put up these numbers because he commits to his role. He's probably like ma- like perfect for his role, maybe more so than any other player in the NBA. Um, and do you risk kind of bringing him out of that? I almost wonder if they they lean on Chris and maybe go the other way because do you give someone like Tory Craig more minutes and say we're actually going to lean the other way and and try to go defense first? Um, because I I think that's gonna, might be an issue for them. We saw it with a little bit in the Shamit minutes. You know he's going to get called into switches. Same thing for campaign. Uh, you know he had to go up against Ingram a couple of times. Um, those guys try, but I mean the size, etc. I almost wonder if maybe they lean into defense, but touches wise, like I, I think you got to lean on Chris, um, not necessarily even to be a scorer, but but continue to leverage the attention he gets to get open looks for everyone else. 
No, I'm with you there. Uh, I think matchup-wise, that's likely the move uh, in this series, though. though it's also interesting here because with Chris Paul, uh, we've seen a little bit of Herb Jones on him, but we've also seen a lot of C.J. McCollum, and we've seen a lot of even like Jackson Hayes or, or switches <laughs> for that matter, too. I wonder, will there come a moment during the series where we're just seeing Herb Jones stick on Chris Paul? Yeah. Because he's been the guy on Devin Booker for the most part, and and that could change the equation with what Phoenix does too. It, it it's uh, look, I would not necessarily pick New Orleans to win the series if you if you tell me Booker's missing the rest of it. I wouldn't go that far. The Suns are deep. They've been to the, to the finals. They have other ways to beat I mean, you. They're used to guys being out too. Exactly. They've done it all year long. So I wouldn't go that far. With that said, though, like there there really is that domino effect where now mm-hmm. Herb is going to be yeah. the guy who's on Chris Paul. And that that makes his life even more difficult than it already was, considering the amount of attention that he's being shown. And if he doesn't need as much attention with two guys on the ball, that means the health defense doesn't need to give as much attention, which means mm-hmm. those passes aren't as available. It's like a, it's a real issue. Yeah, it this series also, I think, has a slight element of like Willie Green knows something. Oh, like yeah. it just feels yeah. like Willie Green knows something. Like <laughs> like Chris Paul was like, oh, I heard I heard them calling out the coverage. I heard Willie said keep going under. It worked tonight, mm-hmm. and Chris Paul said it in the TNT interview after Game One. He said some nights the shots won't go in. That's the bet Willie Green was willing to make, and it just feels like he knows something. He knows how to get under the skin. He knows how to make them work. Um, it, it's going to be really interesting. But I mean, Cam Johnson's going to just step up. Uh, he, I thought he actually had some really good minutes in the second half. I mean, he was hitting big shots as well. They're going to need more of that. Uh, yeah, man. Bridges it's, too, for that matter. Bridges, but yeah. Bridges and Johnson both stepped up at different points this year with those guards out. Yeah, it, it's going to be really, really interesting. Um, it, it could really turn into a fight here, man. I, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by just how, the shot making from the Pelicans in the last four or five minutes. You expect it from the Suns, who are like this historically great clutch team but the pelicans looked unbothered yeah i mean the, the shot ingram hit on the uh, after the inbounds i think it was his last two pointer of the night just spins baseline straight in his jumper it's like oh we've seen that thousands of times from kobe and kd and all these great bucket getters who can just shoot raw off a spin into their jumper like it, it was wild what they were able to do and booker of course can do that too um for this for this phoenix team though the one thing that bothered me in tonight's game. Like, I, I think you're going to have nights where you don't shoot as well, but I thought the defensive intensity mm-hmm. on that end of the floor was not there from Phoenix, particularly from Aiton. And, and he had this great quote in your story where he said, there's a certain vengeance I've been putting into my game. And like, he 100% has turned into that guy. He did it last year on their playoff run. He could do it again this year. I didn't think he did it tonight. I, I just didn't feel I didn't feel Aiton's impact on defense as much. I mean, if you compare it to his best playoff games, like you remember that game one they had against the Lakers where you're like, Aiton's dominating this game the way he's running rim to rim. Yeah. You know what it looks like when he's kind of leaving his imprint. And I don't know if it was a game plan thing, but I, I was waiting. I was like, okay, when are they putting Aiton up on screens? Like, even if it's just to inject some more energy uh, into this group and, it almost it just felt like a regular season effort from Phoenix on the defense end of the floor. Um it was really basic, like pick and roll, we're gonna drop, you're gonna, you're gonna cheat from the corner, we're gonna kick out, get the open three. Like, like I'm with you there. And it, it was disappointing. Obviously, like I'm a big fan of Aiton. That was why I wanted to write that story. Um and, and he said so many interesting things in there. And Mark Bryant, uh, the Suns assistant, was telling me, like, DA is t- talking to me before every game, being like, What are our coverages tonight? 
What's their best play? Going over tendencies. Like he takes pride on that end of the floor. And it just, I think team wide, they just didn't have that, that energy tonight, the intensity you need in a playoff game. It can't be argued in a vacuum that Aiton was the right choice over Luca, but like out of the vacuum, <laughs> considering you know the circumstances with Booker's development, injury aside, uh, Paul's acquisition, could it be argued like when Aiton's at his best that they made the right decision for this roster, considering how they've built it out? Right. It, that's the thing is you you like you said you can never say. Aiton was the better pick, but I think at some point, like this many years removed from that draft, you just have to look at it as like, did we make our team better? And even more so importantly than that, did we acquire a guy who can be important to a title team? And that's what you want to do with the number one overall pick at the end of the day. And I think they did that. And I think that he proved, you know, the genesis for that story, I meant to write it during the regular season. It's just the way it worked out. We ended up doing it for the playoffs, but he was balling when Chris Paul was off the floor. And it feels like so much of his success was tied to Chris, right? We've seen what Chris has done with centers throughout the course of his career. Aiton's the kind of player, and I think Bridges is a similar one. And there's guys like this around the league, but you put Aiton on like the Pistons, it's whatever. But he's the kind of person that can take a good team and just kind of like elevate them in a way that an average center could not. Uh, And it's, it's kind of hard to describe the calculus there, but he has so much more value to a good team than like a replacement value center because of all the different things he can do that ultimately I think what matters is they they selected a guy who can be an, a valuable part of a championship team. Let's just say Devin Booker's out the rest of the series. What's your series prediction? I still got to go Suns and Six. I just can't see, I don't think, Chris Paul is going to let them lose in the first round. He's he's dealt. He's listen. He's had some bad playoff losses. There's no question, but I can't see it happening. I I maybe that's like wishful thinking, but I just refuse to believe that this Suns juggernaut goes out in the first round. Yeah, I I agree with you there. I would go to seven though because I'm a big yeah. believer in this Pelicans team. A yeah. big believer, and not that we've heard anything to suggest Zion could come back. That is still Dude, an that X-factor. would be nuts, man. Would, yeah, I like. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? That would be terrible. Like, what do you even so do if you're Phoenix? If you're, could you imagine if you're Phoenix and it's like, wait, what are we uh, doing? Are we putting Crowder on? Like, what? Like, wh- that's a that's a all hands on deck. Like, yeah. Oh man, man, that'd be that'd be so crappy for Phoenix if that happened. Let's uh, move on to that other Western Conference game now with Memphis and Minnesota. It's a big game. This is an important game for Memphis. They won 124 to 96. They were down 1-0. Three minutes into the game, Steven Adams gets called for a flagrant, and Taylor Jenkins at that point in the game says, you know what? This isn't working the way I hoped. It's time to put Steven Adams on the bench. You're going to be a cheerleader. You're going to be an assistant coach for us the rest of the night. And he fully embraced it while Xavier Tillman, Brandon Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr., even Kyle Anderson getting so many front court minutes for that team and playing at a high level. What changed for the Grizzlies tonight, not having Steven Adams out there defending Carl Anthony Towns like they did in game one? Um, I thought it was a classic, the classic playoff adjustment. Let's play our best players more minutes together. Um, like usually you don't see this until the conference finals. It's like when the Warriors used to not start the death lineup and then they're like, all right, like, okay, <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. do it. Uh, not, not quite that the Grizzlies went to a version of the death lineup, but, I, I was 
you know, I was talking about this with a colleague of mine, Michael Pina, shout out to the pod. Um, you know, I, I thought Clark gave them really good minutes uh, in that first game. And I thought that they looked better when they kind of shifted, quote unquote, small. I just think it like Memphis wants to play fast. And I think that doing like playing those lineups helps them speed up a little bit. And I mean, I know Jaron Jackson Jr.'s minutes were low tonight because it was a blowout, like just him being on the floor more often, not getting into a ton of early foul trouble. Like that is going to make a massive difference for Memphis in this series. Like he has to play, he has to find a way to stay on the court. And I just think it it allows them to play their style of basketball, which is kind of quick and hectic. And like, I don't think Anthony Edwards is like a slow player or anything like that. But when you have that kind of score, like you want the game to slow down, right? Because you can you can just kind of let him cook in the half court, so to speak. But I just thought that they they sped Minnesota up, and the Wolves weren't quite ready to keep up. No, it's impressive to watch. And, and I think this bodes well for them moving forward in the series. It also just straight up bodes well for Taylor Jenkins as an NBA head coach. Mm-hmm. I mean, he learned under, under Mike Budenholzer, who is a very <laughs> good coach, to be fair, but he also was very slow to make adjustments. He also played playoffs. Giannis offense defense. The oh, God. Yeah. One of a playoff game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, mean, that, I mean, like, never mind. Like, it, it was so annoying sometimes watching Giannis get like 33 minutes yeah, while, oh, while the opposing starters get 42. It's yeah. like, just play your best players more. Yeah. Yeah, Grant, Grant that Jenkins hasn't had to do that. Uh, he didn't have to do that tonight. It it does bode well with his ability, in my opinion, to qu- quickly pull the plug on what worked all season long. Because Adams had a great year for the Grizzlies. Them playing that two big lineup with Adams yeah. and Jaron Jackson Jr. was highly effective. And yet, three minutes into game two, they they say enough. We're going to play faster, as you said. We're going to go with our more skilled and more versatile lineups, our better spacing lineups. It just it just all clicked into place for the team. It helped uh, John Morant getting to the basket, downhill attacks. It helped their defensive versatility, as you said, on the perimeter. Carl Anthony Towns, did he? What did he do tonight? Was there anything notable that Cat did tonight? <laughs> I I thought that they. It's it's just the Clippers kind of I think started forming a blueprint there, right? Like there's certain guys, and I think this is like with Jokic too, where it's like. They're so they're not used to going up against like smaller, quicker players who are kind of like it's kind of just like nipping at their ankles, as Shaq would say. It's like the Earthlings getting physical <laughs> with the aliens. Like, and I think, like, like you said, like it just speeds up towns in a way that I, I think he's not accustomed to playing. Like, I don't want bulk on him. Um, like he's going to dominate in some in some one on one post matchups, and you're gonna have to live with that. But yeah, I mean, early in the game, I thought Jaws like was doing such a great job. Once Towns, I think, picked up his second foul early in the first quarter, Jaw like had a dunk at the rim or like a lay in. Like they also, I think, just they clearly made him uncomfortable to. Yeah, they did a good job against him. I mean, they were showing occasional help sometimes. Like I, I believe there was just one play in the third quarter where I think Towns had Clark or no, maybe it was Dylan Brooks on the perimeter against him and Jaron Jackson flies out of nowhere with help mm. defense, two arms up in the air yep. and forces towns to miss the layup and little, little things like that where, where they're showing more help to give him different looks rather than maybe single coverage, Steven yeah. Adams, just getting smoked in right. the perimeter. It just became tougher on him to create that space. And they have the speed to recover with those yes. smaller lineups. If you send help, right? So it's just, it's a domino effect. And that was the kind of energy I expected Memphis to have in game one. Like, Talk about mature performances. That was incredibly composed by Minnesota in game one. And I think Memphis, 
I don't think they match the level of intensity. Obviously, like the sense of urgency, you know it's always going to be dialed up after you lose a playoff game, but that's the kind of effort I expected them to have in game one. I, I just, I love how this Memphis team, because like with depth, with Taylor Jenkins, there may come a moment where he needs to trim the rotation to mm-hmm. eight. There might yeah. come a time he has to, but like game one, uh, Steven Adams plays heavy minutes, and then this game, he's playing only three minutes. Game one, like you don't have Xavier Tillman playing at all tonight. He's 21 minutes, 67 from great. the field. Oh, it was terrific on both ends of the court. And I think with this team, like we haven't even seen John Conchar get his moment yet. <laughs> yeah. And like they just have so many different guys on their roster who at some point, if they make a long run, are inevitably going to get an opportunity to have a moment in a series where it makes sense. And for Memphis, assuming they advance, which is no guarantee here with Minnesota, but if they advance and then they get a round two series against the Golden State Warriors, that may also not be a series for Steven Adams. That's different types of styles there in terms of the size and bulk of Adams against Golden State. On the flip side, maybe it is a series for Steven Adams for that exact reason, because we're seeing Golden State play smaller this first round against Denver. Um, like It's going to be a very interesting thing for Taylor Jenkins to have to deal with moving forward because of the success all year, but it shows how much things just change dramatically in the postseason. It's so true, and uh, it's interesting. It's funny you mentioned Conchar. There was like a real Conchar phase during this regular season. Like the record with him was crazy. And it was like, what's going on here? And it's like, it's just funny to think about. Like he's not even in the rotation right now. But it was like, um, if I'm by the way, like if I'm a team that's expecting to win a title this year, I already have an assistant coach, just only studying the Warriors three guard lineup and thinking, what do we? What can our team do to slow that down? Because I think Denver is like the worst possible matchup for that specific lineup. Um, and it's, it's already, I'm all, my wheels are already just spinning. Like what are teams going to do? Who can defend it? How are they going to defend it? I think I lean with your first instinct there. I don't think that's going to be a matchup for Adams. If the uh, Grizzlies do advance, it would be fascinating if the Wolves advanced because they're not taking towns off the floor. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that that Warriors lineup, Amaldi. The it's just it reminds me of that one year, you know, the Rockets were very upfront about we've spent the entire year preparing to defend the the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, and you could tell they did a hell of a job, the best job any team did against the Durant Warriors. Like that's the level of focus teams are going to need to have against that group. I think you're 100 percent right. I mean, like you you watch that lineup, and it's like okay, they're back, they're yeah. back. I talked about this with Verno on Tuesday's mismatch, but it's like they're back because Jordan Poole has become a star. And yeah. granted, it's a small sample size. It's been trending up for like three years now. Like this goes back to his rookie year with a steady ascension. And it started happening late last season, carried it over. He's gotten better the last 20 games of the regular season. This is for real with Poole. Draymond is looking like the Draymond of, oh, his, of his prime. Oh, man. Just absolutely outstanding. And when you have those two things, in addition to Steph and Clay, Wiggins playing his role, 3 and D style guy, the, plug in Otto Porter if you want to instead of Wiggins in those lineups. They have so many different combos they can play. They are for real. And I, I think, is it just Phoenix in the West that's equipped to defend them? Is it just Phoenix? Or do you think Dallas has enough wings with Finney Smith and some of the stuff they can do there. I do like Dallas's. It will be interesting because Dallas has done a great job defensively mucking things up for teams in the half court. Like when they play Finney Smith, like Kleber, I know, had 
a rough start to that series and an out of body experience in game two. <laughs> yeah, but, <he> did. <laughs> um, that would be an interesting, like the quote unquote Dallas small lineup because their, their small lineups still have a lot of length. Um, I think Dallas would be interesting just because what do you do with Luca? Are you putting Draymond on him? The thing with the Nuggets is they don't have a perimeter guy that the Warriors have to worry about. So you can play three guards together. But you think of, you know, the Suns with Booker, uh, Bridges and Paul, obviously, as well. Um, the Mavs with Luka, the Warriors have to worry about a perimeter guy in that situation. And now you're getting into awkward mismatches because if you put Draymond on Luka, who's guarding Dinwiddie, who go- who's guarding Jalen Brunson, and then what are you doing about kind of their bigs? It gets more interesting. The Suns, it's going to be fascinating. That's one where I'm like, oh, God, I'm the guy who wrote the DeAndre Ayton story because Ayton in that <laughs> matchup, is, I think, is the swing piece, and it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, that, that'll be fascinating if we get it. I hope I, – I shouldn't say that I hope we get it because I think any combination of potential series in the West could be awesome. But if we do get Suns Warriors full strength, full health, like that could be it. We need it. We need it. We need it just for the Paul versus Curry. I I said this the other night, like if there's a Scott Foster ref game in that series, there might be an actual murder. (laughs) Like they're going to need extra security at the game. Like Adam Silver is going to have to run on the court and break up, like prevent it. But. We need oh, it, man. Speaking about refs, what what was with the first couple minutes of that Grizzlies Wolves game? Oh Zach Zarbo was getting way more TV time than Dude, John. That it was, was ridiculous. insane. The number what of fouls in the first that? couple. I I it was like halftime of the Heat game. I remember I was I was watching it and I was like, it was just like on eleven minutes for like six minutes. Like they're just like it took forever to get that game going, and it was already such a bummer that they put it on NBA TV. And it's like I've been like you know. I'm like trying to get my dad like, hey, we should really, you know, get into this Wolves Grizzlies series. Um, and then it's like this happens and it's like, oh, God, like, what have I done? <laughs> what am I telling people? But that was ridiculous. That was ridiculous. Yeah, it, it was unfortunate. And in that game, you know, uh, ultimately, though, for for Minnesota, a disappointing night. We'll mm-hmm. see how they respond in game three at home. That um, crowd's going to be. Nuts. Oh my! That's going to be, be a fun crazy. game. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very excited for that. Both of those home crowds, Memphis and Minnesota, are kicking ass. Like, yeah. I, I love a good home crowd. I, I respect it more than anything because I've been, I've been in arenas for great games, and it's been ugh, crowd for sure, man. And like nothing better. I, I don't want to like generalize, but I, I just love seeing. I love when Memphis is in the playoffs, man. Their fans yeah. get into it. I, like, I just love seeing cities like that. Like, you can tell they really rally around their teams, and it's like. It's really cool to watch. Really cool to watch. It really is. It's 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 amazing to watch. Last game from Tuesday night's game, the Miami Heat beat the Hawks one fifteen to one hundred five. They're up two zero in the series. Uh, performance of the night goes to Carl Anthony Towns' best friend of all time, <laughs> Jimmy Butler, who had 45 points on 24, 25 shots. He was four of seven from three. Butler, uh, he has made 46% of his last 33 three-point attempts going back to the regular season. Before then, he was at 18.5%. Um, <laughs> what the hell happened to Jimmy Butler? <laughs> Jimmy was... Just on one. It's funny. We did like a round table for SI and they asked all the writers for a bold prediction. And I was like, I I don't know what I was like, I think Jimmy's going to shoot above 33% from three. Like he's going to be above average from three. 
I did not expect that. I, that was an explosion. Um, it just felt like tonight he realized, like, I have an advantage on every single one of these guys on the perimeter, even as good of a d- defender as DeAndre Hunter is. They don't have rim protection with Clint Capella out. Like, he can get to the rim whenever he wants. Um, I thought the most interesting thing from that Miami game to me, first of all, I mean, credit to the Hawks defense, who I think did a good job on everyone not named Jimmy Butler. Like, <laughs> Bam and Hero have not got it going at all in this series. Um, and the Heat's offense did lag. Atlanta was able to get back into that game. I've been waiting to see if and when Spo would play P.J. Tucker at center. And mm. we saw it for a few we minutes did. in this game with Bam in foul trouble. And that lineup with Jimmy and four guys was P.J., Caleb, Lowry, and either Struess or, or Hero. Like, that's an interesting look for Miami. And I almost thought that they should have taken Bam out at the end of the game. Do you think that that could be a look for them more moving forward, despite the fact that Bam Adebayo is as unbelievable as he is? Like, Bam brings... You know, maybe the second best defense in the NBA behind Draymond Green. Mm-hmm. And offensively, he can bring it in a number of different ways. Like you said, he's not necessarily a, a a shot creator for you, but he's a very good finisher who can create here and there. Despite that, you know, you got uh, their backups. You have the ability to play with P.J. Tucker at the five. You can mm-hmm. also bring Dwayne Dedman in to bring size and three-point shooting. Yeah, uh, they, they At the least, they showed the the value and playing without Bam, and the potential of playing without Bam without losing a lot. Well, I would just say that, the to me, the tension for the Heat all season has been, do their best players play their best when they're playing together? And I think that there are will always be concerns about Jimmy and Bam's lack of shooting and, and what that does to their offense when they share the floor. I mean, obviously, Jimmy had the crazy shooting night tonight. I don't think anyone expects that every night moving forward. Um, Only I, Jimmy I, Butler expects it. Jimmy Butler yeah, does. Jimmy Butler does expect it. Um, I do think it's something, you know, Spo overall, that rotation late in the season after the infamous fight, they had the four-game losing streak. I, I said my concern was that at a 10 out of 10, like, they need to figure something out. They start, they put Struess in the rotation. They're bringing in Jimmy in with the backups to play with Hero and Robinson to give him some more shooting. If that's the plan, then I do think you could see it, you know, when they play those minutes, kind of the, the first quarter going into the second quarter, that bridge, when Jimmy's out there with bench units. Yeah, put PJ at the five because... If you give Jimmy Butler four spacers, I mean, th- that makes him much more lethal than when the floor is crowded. How much does this, like, what we're talking about here with Miami, we're talking about this on a night that they won. They're up 2-0 on Atlanta. And if you're a Heat fan, you have to be feeling good. And yet, game one, they shoot nearly 50% from three. Um, you know, tonight, they beat Atlanta. Uh, they have different guys playing that center spot, like you said, with Bam with P.J. Tucker, Jimmy Butler goes off for 45, which you can't expect every night, as you said. On one hand, Miami plays a way where they can beat you a different style each night. Sometimes Duncan Robinson hits everything. (laughs) Sometimes Jimmy Butler goes off. Sometimes Bam Adebayo has an advantageous matchup, and he goes off. Sometimes it's Kyle Lowry. Sometimes it's Tyler Hero. Like They have different guys who can be a source of offense for you in different ways to score. With that said, though, they do have some stagnant stretches mm-hmm. where it feels like it's only Jimmy Butler or Tyler Hero who can generate any consistent offense. Uh, do you have a level of concern about their ability to compete offensively as they advance in the postseason? Because their second round series could potentially be against Philadelphia with Joel Embiid. And that, that roster is playing at a really high level right now in their first round series against Toronto. In the third round, it could be Milwaukee. It could be Boston. It could be Brooklyn. How do you feel about how Miami's offense looks now and what it means for them moving forward in the postseason? 
So that is the question. I grew up in South Florida. I mean, I, I follow the heat pretty closely. It's like, it's no secret to anyone who follows me on Twitter. Um, but, and my concern is all, honestly, frankly, always been high with their half court offense. You look at a game like Brooklyn, Boston, for example, at the end of the day, with the late game struggles Boston has had, et cetera, they still have someone in Jason Tatum who you feel confident whether he gets a switch or even when he's playing against, you know, a, one of the best defenders in the world, we can, we can get something resembling a good shot, something we're comfortable with, something we can live with because he, he can get a bucket. He's a three-level scorer. With the Heat, I still don't know. I mentioned they overhauled their rotation like with, you know, 10 games to go in the regular season. How many contenders are doing that? Yeah. And I know and I know things change in the postseason. We just talked about Steven Adams getting excised in Memphis, so things change, but I'm still not confident in who their closing five is because they, they haven't played one consistently all year. And beyond that, just think of the teams you mentioned. Philly, it's going to be hard and beat pick and roll. Boston, we can get Tatum on an ISO. We're going to uh, hunt a switch with Tatum. The Nets, we're going to have Kyrie, KD, hunt switches. Milwaukee, it's Chris Giannis pick and roll. What's that play for Miami? What What's their all else fails? This, this game is, you know, it's a tie game. What are we going to? I don't think they know. Has Kyle Lowry declined to a point that you can't trust him in that role that you're describing? For much of the season, it looked like he was like, I'm not going to try to score. And I think he's become a lot better. Uh, They played that game against Boston right after Rob Williams got hurt. We're down the stretch. It was all Kyle Lowry and Bam Adebayo pick and rolls. That was how they scored. That was, I think, the best and most important fourth quarter they had all season. I think he can do it. And it's not that I don't don't think, I don't think it's a mention of like, or a situation where he's declined. It's just, if that's your best, it's pretty good, but it's not all those other things we just mentioned. It, it can work, but it's not as bankable as all those other guys. You're right. Like that big game against Boston he had uh, end of March, it showed that he still can do it yeah. when he needs to do it. And and we'll, there may come a night for Miami where Hero doesn't have it going on, mm-hmm. where Butler's shot is not falling and the spacing isn't there because Adebayo maybe has to be on the court, where Robinson isn't able to get it going on dribble handoffs or Struess mm-hmm. can't for that matter. And that could be the night where Kyle Lowry has to show that he can still get mm-hmm. 25, 30 points for you. And that that's where like there's some level of confidence with the Heat because they have so many options, but also some pessimism to your point where it's like what Tatum did that other night for Boston against KD while defending Kevin Durant like it, it's it's mind blowing the level that he's continuing to reach as a player, where he's defending one of the best scorers in the league today, one of the greatest scorers of all time, nearly in t- the entire forty eight minutes, and also just generating basket after basket for you on offense. So he's on another level from some of the other players. I have this ongoing bit with my podcast co-host. I mentioned a Michael Pino. We host the Open Floor Pod together. I have this ongoing bit like that. Boston has this like really sophisticated state-sponsored media apparatus just refer <laughs> i refer to it refer to the city as the democratic people's republic of boston it just is a very a sophisticated intelligent like propaganda machine marcus smart <laughs> winning defensive player of the year perfect example oh man yeah Un- unfortunately like everything about tatum's true <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that guy is <laughs> I, it just it, it blows me away it really does i mean you mentioned like two-way uh he clamped up KD. I mean, it was late shot he had a block. five seconds, but... First yeah. half, he had a block on yeah. him, too. Like, what? Yeah, Who and blocks it's, KD? It was, it was really ridiculous. Um, Just the two-way effort he had in that game, and 
like just that's the thing is like in the last three minutes of a playoff game, especially as you get in the later rounds, like it's a different sport entirely than what we've watched even up mm-hmm. until now. And it's just who are the best guys and can you can they get a shot? And I, I trust him maybe second most out of anybody in the conference. And also one other quick thing on the Celtics, you know, propaganda machine that you're talking about with Marcus Smart winning defensive player of the year. Big congratulations to him. Uh, I love Marcus Smart. He is one of my favorite players of all time. He mm-hmm. was one of my dad's favorite players of all time. I love Marcus Smart so, so much. I didn't vote for him. Um, <laughs> but, but which, like, I, I hope that shows that I'm not letting relationships <laughs> no, stain no, my vote. Okay. Which, <laughs> I love Marcus Smart. But, like, I do think with the award, this year's award was a team award. Yes. I really think that's the way voters thought about it. That they gave the award to arguably the best defender on by far the mm-hmm. best defense in basketball. And I look at it through that lens in the sense that not that we should look at the award every year like that, but I, I it, there's something to it. Because yes. defense is about five. Yes. It is about five. And yes. Marcus Smart is the heartbeat of that roster. He is the leader of that roster. So in that sense, uh, I completely understand the voters making the choices that yes. they did. And I'll say this too, like, at the end of the day, like, and I think this is true for a lot of the award fields this year, there are like eight people that if you told me could win most improved, I'd be like, yeah, that that person definitely is it. And I think the same goes for Dents for the play- Defensive Player of the Year. And um, there are people who try to isolate it and you could do it to the best you can. But removing context from defensive stats, is just, it's almost impossible. Um, and you can't just, you can't only judge how good a player is on defense based on what they're doing in isolations, et cetera, what they're doing on switches. I mean, Jimmy Butler is a perfect example of someone who I thought had a has had an unbelievable two-game defensive stretch here, but you, there's no way to measure what he's really done. And at, for Smart, as much grief as I'm giving people, like, he's a fantastic defender on what, like, probably the only team that has a defense that has, like, stood the test of time. Like, even good defenses in the NBA now are, like, kind of bad historically. Boston's was not like Boston's is like right up there with all the great defenses of the last 20 years. Um, I, I I had this stat and I wonder if it would still held up through the end of the regular season, but their starting five with Rob was better than the Katie warriors until 2017. Mm-hmm. Like that's how good they were. And obviously so much of that was defensively. So as much as I'm, you know, criticizing the machine, there's no, there was no bad pick for defensive no. player of the year this year. There were a lot of good options. Uh, I agree. And th- and that's why in some ways I'm a little, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I want to call it disappointed, but I, I wish the discourse wasn't about like from the heat side. Oh, it's ridiculous that Bam wasn't nominated. It's like, I was, I was under- stoking uh, the flames. I just yeah. want to throw that well, out there. I mean, and, yeah. and, I, and I understand, yeah. but like, also it's like, there can only be one. And, yeah. and in some ways I kind of wish maybe the NBA would set a minimum amount of games that are required yes. to qualify for the awards. Therefore you're not, there's no, there's not even the discussion about yes. Bam not winning it then. And instead it's like, Oh, well at least he made all defense and, and he just didn't win DPOY, but he's still had an unbelievable season. Like I, I just wish no, like, it was I, that's, more about that. That's such a good point. And like the NBA is doing nobody any favors with like, yeah. I don't want MVP criteria and let's not, wade into the mvp discourse this week of all weeks but <laughs> yes like at minimum a games played would be would would save a lot of people a lot of time yeah and, and particularly i don't care about voters getting heat but like the team side i wish the players didn't have to stress about that i wish the teams didn't have to even you know think about it. but anyway they're, they're the ones getting paid millions of dollars to deal with it so <laughs> yeah <laughs> well one last thing before we go here the hawks they of course 
actually lost on the other side of this game here. They're down 2-0 in the series now. I was watching this game tonight, and my mind keeps going to the offseason. I know they're only down 2-0. Mm. They're not out of the series entirely, but I can't help but think about what's missing from this Hawks team. Uh, in your assessment, what does Atlanta need to think about as they build this thing out moving forward based off of their early round here? So they're in an interesting position. First of all, I'm with you. I don't think they're out of the series. I, I still think at some point they're going to get a crazy shooting night from Trey. He was he wasn't bad tonight. I mean, he had 10 turnovers, which is not good, but they're going to just they're just going to get a night where he scores 38 and hits 8 of 11 from 3 and that's going to be that. Like I just I believe that's going to happen. Bogey was nuts tonight. To me, I still think that it's weird because I really like their supporting cast in terms of like, I want Bogdanovich on my team. I love DeAndre Hunter. But it's kind of like what we were saying with Luca for the longest time, how they've taken off with Dinwiddie. What we've seen from Jalen Brunson is they have other guys who can handle the ball um, and, and do things. You know, they can play make a little bit. I mean, Brunson's obviously got that that mid-range floater game, et cetera. Like, in this stretch, I think has been good for Dallas because they're showing like we don't have to have Luca have like a sixty usage percentage, yes, uh, to win a playoff game. And I I feel like what the Hawks are missing is they just they don't have a true second star, and that's not a knock on. I love John Collins as well. Capella when he's healthy has been a great for their defense, but I just think they need another creator. They just they need someone else who can they can trust with the ball in their hands. And that's going to require Trey Young advancing mm-hmm. as an off-ball player. Yeah. Bogdanovich goes off tonight, 29 points, 12 of 18. He was doing the stuff that he did for years overseas, ever even before entering the NBA. He's been a yeah. clutch bucket getter. He's a for killer. Years. Yes, he's right. a clutch killer. Yeah, yeah. If you pull up like his Wikipedia of his <laughs> like basketball accomplishments, it's like Finals MVP, <laughs> League MVP, to, to all, all all defense. Like it, it's everything on on there for him. It, he, ha- I'm gonna pull it up right now, just to hell just yeah. To, just to pull up the amount of accolades on there for, for well, what is, yeah, you, it's, it's a long yeah. list. <laughs> Euroleague, all-decade team, Euroleague champion, all-Euroleague first team, rising star, Turkish Cup winner. I mean, it's endless for him. And he did it for Atlanta, but he's not the type of creator you're talking about. He's more of a, a finisher. He's more of a pick-and-roll scorer, not a pick-and-roll playmaker. And what could fully unleash Trey is having somebody who can balance the playmaking and the scoring. I think Bogdanovich is, is a part of that equation, but he's not the type of player that that you're describing for them. It's weird. Like it's weird with them. They have a lot of good pieces, and they're definitely not out of the series. But but I just feel like there's something missing. I think there's something missing. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. If you had to think of if you know, if you're in Travis Slank's shoes, like what are there changes that you've kind of had your eye on or something that you think would work? What would you like to see? I mean, I, I want to see Trey embrace his inner Steph. Is, and I think if Trey, if, if let's say I, I sit down with Trey Young and I say, hey, I want us to get another primary ball handler, that might mean that instead of, instead of averaging 30 and 10, you might be at 26 and, and 10 like, or 25 and 10. You might not score as much, but you're going to be racking up assists. You're going to be sharing the ball. We want you coming off of screens and handoffs and cutting and showing what you can do off ball because like, he's such a smart player. He's a smart player. He can make those reads off ball just as well as he does on the ball because I think Schlank, Schlank built this thing out with his experience with the Warriors in mm-hmm. mind with having that type of ball movement, not necessarily like the more hardened style we see with Trey. 
And that's not a knock against Trey. He's unbelievable. He, I had him on my All-NBA team. He had an excellent season. He's a great player. But I still think the next level for him is getting better off the ball. So in that sense, what would I want to do? It's finding another shot creator at probably at the forward position, like yeah. a, ideally a six seven, six eight, six nine type of guy. Easier said than done to find that. Um, but if you're speaking theoretically, like to me, that's it takes buy-in from Trey, but also finding that player, which is like not an easy thing to do. Like, what what about you? Do you think that's a, a sensible approach for them moving forward? Or no, I think that's a fantastic else? point. I think that's a fantastic point because. Yeah, he is. He just he dominates the ball. Obviously, he's bringing up every possession. Um, I also think that they're going to need to figure out what they're doing with the defense because I'm a big John Collins fan. In in practice, though, like you mentioned, they got to play a little bit more Warriors esque. Like defensively, though, I don't think that they it, it's going to work with Collins at the five. I mean, Okongwu, I think is going to be their kind of their big of the future and I think he's had really good moments even if this hasn't been his best series but yeah I think it's what you're saying they they kind of need someone who can you're not going to find Draymond but they need like that person who can hold the ball at the top of the key and direct the offense that's not Trey Young um, while Trey is just drawing so much attention off the ball and I think they're also going to need to figure out you know because for years I was like why is this team going to trade John Collins he's so good I don't know that I'm giving up on him but whether it's like they need to have like a powwow summit, whatever, like they also need to figure out what they're going to do defensively to make it work. Because I unfortunately think Trey's almost always going to be an issue on that end. One name that I want to mention from the draft for Atlanta that I like, Jeremy Sohan. I'm not sure how much you follow the draft, but he's a prospect, a freshman out of Baylor. And Sohan kind of fits in that like six nine ball was, handler. Was he the type. dude? Was he the dude with the like the blonde hair? Yeah, yeah, the, exactly. Do I love that exactly. guy? Yeah, yes. right. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the right? tournament, yeah. the the eighteen minutes of him that I watched <laughs> this whole year, I was like, I want this guy on my team. Yeah. So like yeah. in those eighteen minutes, though, you see a guy who can do a little bit with the ball, defend multiple positions. It's like, ooh, that's Draymond esque at the least. He's built built in that mold. Uh, I'd love to see Trey with a player like that. I mean, maybe DeAndre. I'm a big like DeAndre Hunter fan. I don't know that he could. Can you try to grow him into that role? Can you give him more responsibility and see how that goes? I'd like to. I'd like to at least see an attempt. But I, I'm with you that I, you know, I don't think they got quote unquote lucky last year. But I do think they they had like a a bracket that worked for them. Um, also, like I think that Philly series, like the Sixers, still outscored them. Um, you know, and it was a seven game series that came down to the end of game seven. Uh, so I they can't get too caught up in, in what happened in that run. And I think they need to experiment a little bit more. Certainly. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to this upcoming weekend. Uh, I got a lot, a lot of good games. And I'm, I thank you for coming on, man. This is a lot of fun. Our first pod. Our yeah, first conversation. Was, hey, this man, this was this was a ton of fun, man. Seriously, our first time we got right into it. Uh, thank you so much uh, for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Thank you, man. You as well. You crushed it with that eight and article. And I'm looking forward to everything else you got coming on. Asai. Thank you again to Rohan for joining The Void. Thank you to Jesse Lopez for producing. And a big thank you to you for listening to The Void. I'll be back on Thursday. That's Thursday this week with another episode of The Mismatch. That's our schedule this week. A lot of good playoff action coming your way. <laughs> <laughs>